Neuropodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. In these bonus episodes of the podcast, we discuss clinical cases with consultant neurologist Dr. Rhys Davies. These discussions primarily focus on the clinico-anatomical correlation of neurological symptoms. We hope you enjoy listening. So I'm joined by Dr. Rhys Davies, consultant neurologist. Hello there. Uh, so I'd like to begin by going through the case. So we've got Mrs. Brown, who's aged 80. She's accompanied to her GP surgery by her daughter, who's become worried about lapses in her mother's memory. Mrs. Brown has become very repetitive and has had some lapses in her daily life, such as leaving pans on the heat and missing appointments. Problems have gradually worsened over an 18-month period. The current visit, though, has been triggered by three episodes of transient neurological disturbance within the past few weeks. In each, Mrs. Brown appeared vacant and was unresponsive for 30 seconds, with some facial twitching noticed by the daughter. Afterwards, she becomes lethargic and more densely confused before returning to her usual state. So, quite a bit to get through, but just to begin with, what types of disease process might be seen to progress over an 18-month period? Okay, so in neurosensory presentations, perhaps more so than others, but across the board, uh, timing is really useful in terms of judging the nature of the disease process. Um, For us, um, where the lesion is being related to the um, nature of the impairments, that's a very important question. But what time and when, those are also very important. So abrupt onset would be things like a knock on the head, so trauma or vascular uh, compromise, a, a stroke, or sometimes acutely low blood pressure. Um, the opposite end, the very slowly developing uh, processes are degenerative diseases, aren't they? So, so you could say that in, uh, in the body generally, osteoarthritis might be considered a degenerative condition affecting the joints, um, and it develops over many years. Within the nervous system, there's a whole range of degenerative Uh, processes that happen uh, but uh, a number of brain diseases are sporadic uh, neurodegenerative diseases of later life. Of course there's a whole grouping of conditions in the middle between between acute processes like trauma or vascular obstruction on the one hand, and chronic things like degenerative disease. So these would include inflammatory processes uh, and infections that would tend to be acute but not instantaneous or maybe subacute, depending on the nature of the inflammation or the infection. Um, For instance, tuberculosis is usually associated with um, with a chronic infection, whereas... Uh, the meningococcus, Neisseria meningitis, would be associated with a very acute uh, neurological infection. And then um, slightly slower in most cases than inflammation and infection, 
but quicker in most cases than neurodegenerative disease would be neoplasia. So the, this would be the, the, the growth of tumours. Um, so that would be the range of disease types. And if it's over 18 months, I think it's very likely to be a neurodegenerative process. OK, so moving away from sort of the pathological processes and thinking about the localization. So, so are you able to describe to us the structures that constitute the limbic circuit and the type of memory they, they subserve? and the other subtypes of memory. Okay, so um, so this patient has problems with memory, doesn't she? And so um, it, she uh, is considered likely to have a problem in the bit of the brain that is responsible for making and um, retaining memories for events so that's sometimes called episodic memory and this is a group of structures that are actually around the edge around the limit of the cerebral hemisphere so so the limit the inner limit of the cerebral hemisphere where the cerebral hemisphere sort of um latches on to the the brainstem and diencephalon uh, and probably best to start with the hippocampus, which is uh, in the medial part of the temporal lobe. And uh, so that uh, has its output uh, in a bundle of axons called the fornix that exit the hippocampus posteriorly. Um, and then that structure, um, uh, as, it, as the fornix, is... Uh, seem to travel under the corpus callosum and it travels down to part of the hypothalamus called uh, the mammillary body and the mammillary body has a projection to the thalamus that's called the mammillothalamic tract so always tracts have names where the first bit is the origin and uh, the second bit is the target of the tract the thalamus then as it always does, projects to the cortex of the hemisphere. And in this case, the main um, projection is to the cingulate cortex, which is above the corpus callosum anteriorly. And then there's a, there's a bundle of fibres, the cingulate bundle of fibres, that travels around the edge, the inner edge of the hemisphere. So it travels posteriorly, um, uh, on the in the cingulate gyrus above the corpus callosum um, and then enters the parahippocampal gyrus, so the gyrus next to the hippocampus um, at the posterior end of it and then the fibres pass anteriorly and then they connect with the hippocampus in the mesial temporal lobe. So that's a loop, it's actually sort of two loops, one arm of which goes under the corpus callosum and the other bit of which goes over the corpus callosum. So that's a, a, a circuit um, and that has its main function in episodic memory, so that's memory for events. The other subtype of conscious memory, which is not for events in a particular time and place, is semantic memory um, and that's knowledge memory for um, for, for, for what an object, what a particular object is, what a concept is, what a word is or what it means, um, and also who a particular person might be. So that's semantic. Those memories are conscious memories, but they're not tied to a specific 
time and place, as would be the case for episodic memory. Those are the two classical divisions of what we think of as memory. We should also think about working memory, which we sometimes call short-term memory, but it's good to move away from that term because the, um, the anatomy and the physiology of short-term working memory is basically the attentional system of the brain. So that's what allows you to remember the beginning of a very long sentence like this one right through to its end. So it's one span of attention, one span of consciousness. So that's another form of conscious memory, but not long-term memory. And then there's a whole range of other things that are descriptions of the way that the brain can retain previous experience and previous functions without necessarily being conscious. And these are sometimes referred to as unconscious memories or more commonly non-declarative or implicit memory, whereas the other conscious forms can be called declarative or explicit forms of mem memory. And, you know, this is um, procedural memory, uh, conditioning, priming, the details of which I think we don't need to go into. OK, and I guess really the key thing from what you've described there, the limbic circuit would be that if you disrupt that circuit in any of the in any of the structures mm. that, that compose of it, the, the clinical picture or the clinical presentation could be quite similar. So the That's fact right. that it's an episodic memory problem does not itself mean no. So you need to dig a bit deeper. So, so it localizes to the circuit as a whole in general. So at a, at a at a very sophisticated level of assessing the neuropsychology of memory, you might have a slightly different pattern, but generally speaking, yeah. if you have a lesion anywhere, whether it's the hippocampus, the fornix, the cingulate, the mammillary body, wherever the lesion is, the clinical syndrome will be similar. Okay. And uh, back to our case. So are you able to tell us about some of the diseases that might disrupt uh, sort of limbic function? And what do you think is most likely in Mrs. Brown's case? So we've said that this is a neurodegenerative uh, scenario with the 18-month history, and the commonest of all the neurodegenerative diseases is Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but basically Alzheimer's disease involves deposition of abnormal proteins intracellularly and extracellularly, particularly in the medial temporal lobe in the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. So Alzheimer's disease affecting the hippocampus in particular is the obvious cause to invoke here. Um, there's a whole range of other diseases, so, so you can get actually um, an arachnoid cyst in the third ventricle, that's, that's a, a, a condition that neurosurgeons sometimes need to operate for, and one of the complications of that operation is damage to the fornix. So that's, a, that's obviously a much rarer cause of damage to the limbic uh, circuit. There are infections and inflammatory processes that affect the limbic cortices. Uh, you can get vascular disease, uh, usually the posterior circulation. And then there's a, there's a quirky disease, um, which is, like many diseases that are interesting, um, also very serious, and this is actually damage to the mammillary body, um, and that is um, 
vitamin B1 thiamine deficiency. Uh, and thiamine deficiency can cause necrosis and infarction of the cells of the mammillary body, and that can produce a very severe impairment of episodic memory, so an amnesia. Um, and that can occur uh, in people who have nutritional problems. Um, but the commonest category is um, uh, uh, people who have dietary problems and also other metabolic problems related to excessive alcohol consumption. Okay, so, so that's really useful. So the, the fact the problem is episodic memory tells us it's a problem of the limbic system mm. or lim limbic circuit, mm. and then you get the clues as to the cause through looking at the tempo of symptoms. So moving on, are you able to tell... Tell us a little bit about what the neural substrates of consciousness are. Oh, so um, this is in relation to the episodic symptoms. So this lady has a chronic syndrome of impaired episodic memory, doesn't she? Um, but she also has these episodic symptoms of impaired consciousness. So she becomes vacant and unresponsive. And that's a different thing. Mm. So consciousness alertness is to be distinguished from impairment of memory for events. So the, the neural substrate of these functions is not the limbic lobe as such, um, but uh, the scenario here is that we need to think about the brain as a whole. So, so if you have disease of the brain as a whole, so intoxication would be a, a scenario um, with, with drugs, alcohol, sedative drugs, whatever, um, so that could cause impaired um, consciousness. That would, that would be a process affecting the cerebrum, the cerebral hemispheres as a whole. Um, you might also have raised pressure affecting the, the brain as a whole. Um, you might have um, lack of blood uh, to the brain from, from a fainting episode or something more serious. Um, or you might have electrical disturbance of the cerebrum as a whole, and we might return to that in just a moment. The additional thing that needs to be remembered is that impaired consciousness can occur also from a small lesion within the brain. So, so often impaired consciousness follows severe generalized disease of the cerebrum but it can also follow a focal disease in the upper part of the brainstem and the nearby diencephalon um, and so a small stroke say from occlusion of one of the branches of the basilar artery can have a devastating effect at that point or uh, injury from uh, pressure uh, of a nearby tumour, for instance. So, so consciousness um, has two uh, anatomical substrates. So there's the, the, there's the upper part of the brain as a whole, um, and there's also the brainstem, and the upper brainstem in particular. And just to clarify, I should say that the lower part of the brainstem is important to be aware of here because the lower part of the brainstem has vital functions important for the um, maintenance of life, so breathing uh, in particular, 
Um, so, so you can have um, uh, effects on uh, sustaining life from a small lesion in the lower brainstem, but the areas that are involved with consciousness are in the upper brainstem. And the most dramatic illustration of that of all, of course, is the condition called locked-in syndrome. And that is a, a lesion of the pons, so not of the upper brainstem, not of the midbrain, but of the pons. Um, and basically these people cannot do anything except give you the output of the midbrain, which is upward and downward eye movement. So they can do that and they are conscious, but they can't do anything else. This is a rare scenario, but it's a very poignant one and an important one to be aware of. Okay, and then you've alluded to in your answer there, but just returning back to Mrs. Brown's case, what do you think accounts for the episodes of neurological disturbance? Okay, so these are episodes of neurological disturbance uh, that are similar from one to the next. There are no particular features to suggest that this lady is fainting, um, so that could be a, a blood pressure or heart problem. And the likelihood is that this lady has a form of epilepsy. We call this focal epilepsy rather than generalised epilepsy, causing a, a convulsion of the body as a whole. Um, and in fact, any disease of the brain has the propensity to bring on epilepsy as an, as an effect of electrical brain disturbance. Okay. Great. So that's the, that's the end of the case. Uh, lots of useful learning points. But are there any uh, particular key messages you've got for the students? Hmm. So um, I think being clear about impairment of memory for events as a very common uh, cognitive problem and drawing a distinction between that and alertness and consciousness um, in the mind, I think that's, that's very useful for the, for the clinician to have in their mind. Um, and also um, having familiarity with epilepsy as not just having generalised, full-blown convulsions as, as the clinical manifestation. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly.